Yeah. So as a matter of uh, introduction, Charles Ticker, thank you for being here. Uh, delighted to have you. You're a very experienced estates lawyer, specifically estates litigation, as opposed to the solicitor side, the estate planning. Uh, you've also developed your practice into a mediation practice, which is somewhat of an extension of estate lit- litigation. I'd love to hear more about all that. But as a starting point, let's let's go to how you started. If you'd like, you can take us back to your adolescent years and what prompted you to study law and then take us through the beginning part of your journey. Well, uh, thanks very much, Avi, and thank you for inviting me to uh, chat with you today. Um, well, I grew up in uh, Montreal uh, in, uh, in the, uh, I was born in the early 50s, and uh, I moved to, uh, to uh, Toronto uh, in the, the mid-70s after I graduated from undergraduate uh, studies at McGill. But uh, just talking about growing up in Montreal, uh, 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 I uh, was a good student, uh, never, never interested in, in law as a, as a youngster, as an adolescent. I always thought I wanted to be uh, a doctor. Uh, um, matter of fact, in the, in the fifth grade, we had a project uh, uh, that uh, we had to interview somebody for, for school in, in grade five. And uh, I ended up interviewing my pediatrician because I was interested in medicine. Uh, actually, he was my second choice. My first choice was, if we have time, was actually Dickie Moore. I don't know if you remember Dickie Moore, maybe before your time, but Dickie Moore was a great Hall of Famer with the Montreal Canadiens and also the Toronto Maple Leafs and scoring champ. And uh, I, he was my childhood hero. And uh, so uh, I, my dad had t- taken me to a hockey game. I remember it was the Habs and the Blackhawks. And I, I had met Dickie Moore at a synagogue father and son dinner. And, and I shook his hand after the dinner. And I wrote a note before the game. And I gave it to the guard outside the dressing room. I said, this is for Mr. Moore. And, and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm the guy who shook your hand at, at the synagogue uh, last month. And I'm doing this interview for school and could you, could I interview you? And, uh, um, never heard from him and the time was passing. So I had to interview my, my pediatrician. He was the fallback because I never heard from Dickie Moore. Uh, Interesting. About, about, about a month later, I get a phone call and my mom picks up the phone. She says, um, it's Dickie Moore on the phone. I'm like, wow. ah. So he says, hi, it's Dickie Moore. I'm sorry. We were on the road. I just getting back to you still want to do that interview. And, you know, idiot that I was, you know, always honest, honest lawyer. Right? And I said, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I already did my interview, so we don't have to have the interview. Well, <laughs> you must regret that to this day. Yeah. And, and so that was, that, that's a crazy story. Yeah, I do regret it. And actually at my wedding, one of my good friends who knew the story uh, at my wedding, he was one of the, uh, he was making a speech. He says, I want to read a, a telegram from Dickie Moore for you. So uh, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. But uh, so we, you know, to get back on track. So. No, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a doctor. And uh, I, you know, uh, did well. Um, and then I went to university. And I don't know if this has happened to other members, uh, to you or your audience, but, you know, I was living at home in, in Montreal and I was, so I was commuting to McGill. But um, one thing that they don't tell you about university is you're basically got to manage your time. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm at this university, and you got one hour of classes a day, and uh, you know, and you, and I wasn't as disciplined as I should have been. So I did well, but I didn't do, I guess, well enough to make the cut for med school. So I, I applied to a lot of med schools, and um, 
didn't get into med school. Uh, so then I decided I took a year off, I think. Um, no, I'm sorry, I didn't take a year off. As, as a fallback, I, I, I wrote my LSATs and applied for, to about a half dozen law schools. Mm-hmm. And I got, but I got into, I think, about five law schools, you know, early acceptance. So I ended up going to moving to uh, to uh, Toronto. Uh, no, actually, I had taken a year off. That's right. Then I moved to Toronto and I decided I'll go to Osgood. I even though I got accepted to McGill Law School because I figured there's more medical schools in Ontario. And if I'm a resident of Ontario, maybe I have a better chance of getting into med school. That was still my thinking first year law school. Well, um, but I said, I'll, you know, I'll just try it. Anyway, turned out I really liked law school and I really did well with it. I, I, you know, I was getting A's and B's. I was doing great. And in the more, not only that, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the intellectual dialogue, um, and the, the, and, uh, the, the professors would, who were just a couple years older than me and some of them, and they were brilliant. Um, I remember, uh, uh, now, Justice uh, Ed Bellababa was my contracts professor in first year, and uh, you know he got me even to do a guest lecture of his of his class one day, and we you know we became friends in law school. So, uh, but you know he was just brilliant as all as they all were uh, for the most part at at Oscar, the professor. So after first year, I said, you know, I forgot about med school, and uh, I stuck with law, and um, so. You know, there's some people, I guess, who always want to be a lawyer. That's not me. I sort of fell into it. And um, and uh, it's also we, we can talk about later. I also sort of fell into the estates law. And we can talk about that later, how that. Yeah, happened. I mean, so that's what I'm, life is. You know, sometimes you just something just comes across your way and, you know, it happens and you, you get into it. Right. Anyway, amazing to hear. So, so what happened then after law school? Sounds like you had a great experience there. What was your first job and in what field of law? Yeah. So my, I got called to the bar in 1980. (laughs) I love saying, by the way, you've been a lawyer since before I was born. Thank you very much. You're making me feel really good. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so my, I when I got out of the bar, there was a recession going on. It was a tough time. to uh, to find a job, um, I had articled at a small firm, and uh, they had me doing what I don't. The young lawyers will even relate to this, but in those days, uh, if you wanted to do a search of title or real estate, you had to go down to the registry office, pick out the old dusty books, and go back and do you know title searches. And that's what most of my articling was. I did some small claims court work and some research, but it was a small firm. I didn't particularly enjoy my article. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a counsel at that firm who became sort of a mentor to me, the late uh, Ben Sishi, who became a master of the, of the Supreme Court. Um, and I used to chat with him and he, he was a brilliant barrister. Right. Um, and uh, anyway, so it was a small firm, my article. And then my first job was also with, with a two man firm. And I took over for the litigator who was leaving. And, uh, you know, didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, I was lucky to get the position, but I think my first job paid about $15,000 a year, uh, you know, which was not great. I mean, compared to what a big firm would have paid, but that's what they were paying then. And then I stayed there for a few years and then I, I, I went to, uh, 
uh, a mid-sized firm and like, you know, got double the salary. And I lasted about five years there. That was uh, a firm called Del Zotto Zorzi, which is still around uh, and did litigation there, civil litigation. And then uh, 1986, uh, I went out on my own. Wow. And uh, that was that was a scary time. Yeah, I'm sure. So, I mean, I'm, I'm also a sole practitioner. It's me doing everything, uh, at least at this stage. Um, and you're the first sole practitioner who's uh, I've spoken to on this podcast. Everyone else has been uh, either a member of a big firm or a, a leader of a big firm. So I have a special affinity to you, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you have a, a great practice and a great firm. It looks like you've built up a, an expertise. So maybe you can just comment on what went into those decisions, the career changes from one firm to the next, and then what precipitated you to go on your own. And even more than that, I look at you now as such a, a fantastic lawyer, a leader in the estates field. I'm sure a lot of the firms out there would love to have you. So uh, an extension of that is what is keeping you as a sole practitioner? Right. Um, anyway, I try not to use the word sole practitioner, although that's what the law society, the box that you check off. I always right. refer to myself as a boutique firm. You know, nice. it sounds a little, little more fancy. I don't know. Um, I, I guess um, I never... Um, I never really wanted to work with a large downtown firm. Um, that decision, I even when I was looking for articling positions, I wasn't really um, looking for to work in a in a large firm, um, and it was just not my cup of tea. Um, and you know, in hindsight, yeah, financially it might have been better, um, but I don't know. But personally or emotionally, it would have been better, and uh, and we can talk about that later. So for me, I wanted small to medium firms. I thought I wanted to do uh, criminal law, and I articled. Uh, I'm sorry, I interviewed for a few articling positions in criminal firms, and but you know it didn't pan out. So I went to a small firm. So early in my practice, I was doing a mixed bag. I was doing criminal law. I was doing civil litigation. I was doing some family law. Um, not too much estate litigation then. Uh, and then when I went on, I decided to go on my own. Just that it was just one of those things. It was time to to leave, uh, and uh, it was just a mutual parting of the ways. And I went on my own, and and I remember uh, sitting there. I think my office of sharing space at Bay and Bloor was just sitting in my office, and you know waiting for the phone to ring. I mean, like I'm saying, what the heck did I do? Because in those days, nobody knew about networking. Um, you didn't learn this. There was no social media. There was, you know, there was no, you know, groups where you went out and networked. And I, so I hope you don't mind telling, I'm digressing, but tell little stories. Or maybe Go for it. Feel free. So the first thing that my dad told me to do when I went on my own was, he said, look, you're starting a business. You can need a line. You're starting a practice. You're going to need a line of credit. You need a, you may be looking for a referral source. He says, you got to get to know your bank manager. Take him to lunch. Mm-hmm. So, Good advice. So I took, I went to the, my bank and negotiated my first line of credit. And I said, I'd like to take you to lunch. I take the manager to lunch in this nice restaurant downtown. And we're sitting at lunch and uh, looking at the prices on the menu. I said, it's okay. I'll, you know, it's promotion. I'll write it off. He turns to me, he says, you know, thank you very much, Charles, for inviting me to lunch. You know, he says, I have some good news. I said, yeah. You know, I figured he's got a big file for me. He says, yeah, I'm leaving the branch, uh, going to another branch. And I'm saying to myself, great, now i got to take another manager out for lunch? Right. <laughs> so anyway, so in the beginning, 
you know, it, it was my, you know, friends and relatives who were helping me out and doing house deals and stuff. And there were then some old lawyers would send stuff. Um, and, but things built up. And then I moved to, to a couple other firms to share space. I always liked, you know, sharing space with other lawyers. And then in the late, uh, 80, 89, 90, uh, uh, my, uh, brother-in-law who was managing my wife's family's business, which was like a real estate uh, holding company that had some uh, industrial properties said, you know, why don't you come in? And so then I was doing like litigation. Right. And, and I said, okay. Uh, but I said, you know, I'm not ready to close up my practice. So what happened was I, I went there in the early nineties um, and uh, was doing some of the real estate management and and leases and stuff. And uh, I still kept my practice going, but it started changing. It's because I didn't have time to do court stuff. I got more into solicitor's work. And that's how I started getting into the estates area. So I started going to seminars and conferences on wills and reading up and, you know, getting precedence and st- started building up an estate solicitor practice. Interesting. And then, and I never gave it up because I couldn't, I couldn't get the lawyer thing out of me, you know, like, you know, like I'd be sitting in a meeting there at the office and they say, stop thinking like a lawyer. I said, I can't help it. I was trained to think like a lawyer because, you know, you know, lawyers are always questioning everything. And, you know, business guys are, let's go for it. And say, wait a minute, not so fast. Have you read this? Have you read that? What about this? You know, that's how, how we're trained. Right. Anyway, I discovered this real estate thing in as a, a profession. Uh, uh, it wasn't for me. So after about nine years, 10 years, I bumped my head. I went back to the practice of law. But now I was doing more wills and estates. I was doing a lot of wills and estates. But then the the litigation started coming in, the estate disputes. And a few years ago, uh, I don't know if it's six, seven years ago, I just gave up the will practice entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, focused, I guess, the last seven, eight years solely, or maybe a little longer, solely on estate litigation. I always did litigation. And that's how I got into estate litigation. So, uh, and it's funny, it took me like 30 years to find an area of law that I was really passionate about. You know, I always enjoyed it, but it was the estate stuff that really, uh, you know, spoke to me and that I'm really passionate about. And that's why probably I'm still doing it. I always tell people like, I'll stop practicing when, you know, when they have to either, you know, I just don't have the strength to do it anymore. They carry me away or it stops being fun. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not having fun, I'll stop practicing. Yeah. Really amazing how you went on a journey and it took you so many years to find your niche, if you will. And I mean, it's an inspiration that it, it takes so long and you've got to kind of experiment, uh, not only in, in law, different fields, but uh, even outside of law. And um, I mean, that's what it takes to find your calling in a profession. That, that's what I yeah. learned from what you just said. Right. And I think the reason the state litigation, I've enjoyed it, is that, um, you know, I think it suited my personality and my approach to solving problems. I mean, uh, yes, I can be aggressive and I have to be in court. And, you know, clients always say, I want a shark. And I say, well, if you want a shark, prepared to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars because sharks don't negotiate and they're just going to, you know, you're going to get huge bills. Um, but what I found, um, at least in, in the state bar in Toronto, 
is that it's a relatively small group. When I started going to the conferences, I guess, years ago in the late 80s, we 90s, maybe you got, it's, you know, 50 lawyers at an estate summit or some conference. Now you'll get like four or 500. Right. But still, relatively speaking, the number of lawyers that focus on state litigation is much less than criminal law or matrimonial law or, or real estate law. So we, I got to know the, 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 you know, the, the lawyers that are focusing this area and, you know, their colleagues, um, and their, their, their friends and they're good people to work with and, and that I respect uh, tremendously. And that's also which makes, made the work, uh, more enjoyable. Like sometimes clients have a problem that's a, wait a minute, how can you shake that lawyer's hand or how can you have a coffee with him? He's on, he's on the other side of the case. I said, you know, when I was doing criminal law, I didn't have coffee with the, with the crown attorney. But when we're doing a state litigation, I said, we're focused on helping you, the client, get out of this mess. And it's important that we be able to have a dialogue. You'll be thanking us because the odds are you're going to settle your case anyway. You know, 95 plus percent is going to settle. So why do I want to go to war with the other lawyer? We should be trying to sort out the issues. So it was the approach, uh, which is more collaborative, at least in Toronto, uh, amongst the states part that, that was attractive to me. It suited my personality and I found that it was able to uh, not only enjoy what I'm doing, but get good results from for the client. That's that's great, and I, I agree with you. It's a good member. Uh, the, all the members of the Estates Bar are all friendly and helpful, and it's a, it's a nice bar to be a part of. Um, so, I mean, now that you specialize in Estates the past few years, uh, again, I find it inspirational how you developed an Estates practice relatively late in your career after a lot of experience and it gives younger lawyers hope that there's always time to pivot um you know especially as a sole practitioner but always uh you you got to follow your calling and and do what's good for you professionally and and uh, you find a meaning eventually yeah it you know it, it i think uh, if you're if you're going to be successful to practice the law uh and 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 how you Deemed to assess whether it's financial or reputation. Successful to me is if you love and enjoy what you're doing. And so, you know, for young lawyers out there, like, you got to find what you're passionate about. And it may not be the practice of law at all. You may to use your legal knowledge and do something else, writing, uh, business, whatever, uh, speaking. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, life is too short that you, you don't want to spend a whole career saying, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I don't want to go to work in the morning or I'm not having right. a good time. So that is the difficult challenge, I think, in the practice of law is finding something that you enjoy and that you want to do. So it's not a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, follow ups, but I'll, I'll maybe get into a bit of estate litigation with you as that's what you do right now. And, um, I mean, I read your book, Bobby, Bobby gets Bubkas, really. Bobby, Bobby gets Bubkas. Bobby gets Bubkas. Really? I have it over yeah. here. Fair. Such Fair. a useful read. Shameless plug there. All right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great book. I really recommend, uh, people read it and it's so user friendly and accessible. Um, so before you get there to the details of the book, why you wrote it and, and what it's done for you, maybe just go into, the initial sort of client contact and explain 
what is estate litigation? What what do clients, what should they expect going into estate litigation? And also, um, you know, take your time on this one. What what are the grounds for estate litigation, grounds for challenging a will? What are the reasons they could litigate? What are the options available, if you will? Okay, so... The initial contact is usually from, um, and uh, we'll talk about litigation over wills. Although we're seeing now more litigation over powers of attorney, while the you know the parent is still alive. Mm-hmm. But assuming that this is a case where the parent has died, um, typically uh, the clients coming in are very uh, emotional. Uh, they're very upset. They're perceiving something is it's not fair. That's that's what they're coming to you about. Uh, there's an estate plan here, a will here. It's not fair. Uh, I'm getting a smaller share than my sibling or I'm cut out of the will. And uh, they're upset. They're angry. Um, and usually uh, they don't have a good rapport with their siblings. Uh, it goes way back. So uh, the first thing I have to explain to them that is that, you know, fairness, at least in Ontario, is not the test for whether or not a will is going to be a, a, a successfully challenged. I mean, so the grounds are, you know, did the testator lack testamentary capacity? In other words, did, did the testator know what his or her assets were? Did uh, he understand that what a will does? Did he understand who the members of the family are um, and who may have a, a claim to the estate? Uh, does he or she understand, you know, suffer from any delusions or, uh, or uh, mental illness that may be affecting the, the ability to, to make an estate plan. Mm-hmm. So, uh, or and, and other grounds are uh, undue influence, which is very hard to prove because the undue influencer is doing it in private, but there are red flags that were, you know, you look out for uh, if someone all of a sudden, an elderly person with, with some dementia uh, close to their death, all of a sudden changes the will and does a complete 180 and takes out people that were in the will and puts in, you know, the uh, the new caregiver as a beneficiary or, you know, or 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 put sometimes puts reasons in the will that don't make any sense. Um, you know, that's a red flag. If the person has been living alone, is very dependent on one of the kids for care, and uh, that child has sort of been keeping the other siblings out of the loop and not communicating and not allowing visits. That's a red flag. So, um, you know, then people will come and say, well, this will is a forgery. And well, that's another ground. You might get a handwriting analysis done, but that's not that common, but it happens. Um, uh, improper execution of wills. A lot of people, you know, don't want to spend the money going to a lawyer. So they get a will kit and they, they use the wrong number of witnesses. They don't have two witnesses or they, they use a beneficiary or beneficiary spouse as a witness and, or, you know, they forget to put in a, a residue clause. So sometimes, you know, we see not only will challenges, but we see wills that are very poorly drafted. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes by lawyers, but quite often the ones that are done poorly may be done by the testator uh, himself or by a financial planner or by an accountant, you know, people that should not be doing wills. Um, so, you know, those are the major grounds uh, that uh, you'll see for doing a will challenge, lack of capacity, undue influence, forgery, uh, suspicious circumstances uh, where uh, someone's making a will on their deathbed or, you know, something like that. Um, but the clients have to understand that, at least in Ontario, uh, there's no law that says adult children or have to be treated equally. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's not like in BC where you, where you can have applied to the court to have them vary the will um, on moral grounds, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, so there's will challenges, but that's not all that we see in state litigation. A lot of the times, we a lot of the, the calls I get are about people that are uh, co-executors that are not getting along, and, and therefore the estate's not getting administered. So you're having applications to have a, an executor removed, or a beneficiary's having a problem not getting information from an executor. Um, uh, you see support claims against the estate by spouses or children or, or parents sometimes, um, uh, claims for equalization on, on a, similar to a divorce situation where a married spouse elects to, to make an equalization claim as opposed to taking a gift. So there's lots of things that it comprise estate litigation, uh, you know, um, and then, like I said, we're seeing a lot of litigation now over powers of attorney and, and guardianship while people fighting over the, the money while the parents, you know, still alive, but, you know, not capable. So that's a real growing area. So I'm, I'm on the solicitor side of things, at, at least at this stage. And uh, I ask you as someone who came from the solicitor side of things, you were a will drafter and now you're on the litigation side of things. Is there any way for solicitors, drafting lawyers to protect themselves 100% by drafting a good will and then you know, doing their due diligence and then there's no way that it could litigate? And what does that uh, consist of? What is a, a good will that'll protect you as a lawyer and prevent future litigation? Right. Well, there's, uh, there's no 100% foolproof way to so-called bulletproof a, a will. Even uh, I've seen like fantastic wills with very experienced practitioners that know what they're doing. The will still get challenged. If somebody wants to fight, they'll fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what uh, drafting lawyers can do is make sure that uh, they um, um, you know take certain steps to at least you know minimize the risk of a dispute. Uh, and I spoke about this recently at the Estates and Trust Summit. Uh, you know you can uh, totally avoid it because these things are so emotionally driven. People fight even though they may not have a fight a case. But what you can do is first of all. You, it's important to know who your client is. So, you know, you got to meet with the testator alone. The testator being, of course, the person making the will. Uh, so, you know, sometimes when we're doing a litigation file and we get an order for production of the drafting lawyer's file, we'll see that one of the children sat in on the meeting. I mean, it doesn't, ha- you know, it happens. And, and that's a big no-no. You have to meet with them alone. I mean, some siblings will get upset even when they hear that their sibling drove the parent to the lawyer and sat in the waiting room. So you maybe want to make a note, yes, sibling, you know, child drove parent to the meeting, but had the child, you know, stay in the waiting room, had no conversation about them with them about the plan. And, uh, and, um, and you have to take the time to really interview uh, the, the client get the family background, get the health background. Have you made prior wills? Why are you changing it? Uh, take really good detailed notes, particularly if it's a potentially contentious situation where someone's being cut out or somebody is not being treated equally. Like, you know, it's not enough to say um, in the, in your notes, well, he's not leaving Johnny anything in the will because uh, I actually saw this about, you know, Johnny caused a lot of trouble for me. That was the extent of it. No details. And what happens is when Johnny comes to see me, the litigator, what's driving the dispute is not only the money, it's sometimes just the lack of 
of they're, they're fighting for the affection of the parent, even though the parent's no longer there. That's what kids are. They're, this sibling rivalry goes way back to childhood. So they're looking for answers for why. So the more detailed your notes are as to why, the better that may, you know, that may stop a challenge because they could say, well, there, you know, there, there's why. Um, the other thing is um, um, joint accounts. Make sure that you have the client give clear instructions how they want their joint accounts uh, handled. There's a presumption now uh, since uh, the Supreme Court in Pecor in 2007 uh, uh, that there's a as you know presumption of resulting trust where a parent puts an adult child on a joint asset. So um, the court says you, the presumption is there and it's up to the child to rebut the presumption. You need evidence of the intention of the parent at the time of the transaction. So at least get it in the notes uh, saying, no, yeah, there's this joint account, joint account, but it's held in trust for my estate. I only deal, dealt, dealt with it this way to save probate fees, but or no, it's meant to be a gift to my child. Um, what other things can you do? Um, so just to comment is that uh, in my will drafting practice, uh, at least uh, this year, 2020, since COVID and everything, I've been doing it over Zoom and recording the Zoom call. And that record, that recording, I put as part of the file. And I've heard that's great because you can uh, show the judge if that's what it comes to. This is the intake process. This is what the client said. You can see it themselves. But I've also heard that that puts the lawyer a lot at risk because the judge might say, why didn't you ask that? Why didn't you probe that? Yeah. Also, so do you have any comments on, on recording yeah. the videos? Yeah, and that was one of the points. Uh, um, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the points that I have uh, typically talk about is even before COVID, should you videotape the interview with the client, both the instruction interview and the signing meeting? Right. Um, and uh, I know some lawyers do that. Uh, I never did. Um, but in my experience, even if it's a, a very well done interview and a, a good video, um, it doesn't necessarily stop a challenge. Once again, if somebody wants to fight, they're going to find something, like you said, you didn't ask that, um, or um, uh, no, I don't think he really understood what you asked. Or and I, I, m- I remember once I had a case. It wasn't a lawyer interview. It was it was one of the kids interviewed mom about her intentions for the will and say, mom, isn't this what you want to do? You want to cut out Charlie? And and, and it was so obvious that they were bombarding this, this, this mom that the video was actually very helpful to the challenger. But, but I've seen even well done videos. It's not the, it's, it's one piece of the evidence, one piece of the puzzle, but it, it's, it will not a hundred percent stop a challenge. Now with COVID, and these virtual witnessing of wills and doing it over Zoom, and I think we are going to see challenges down the road. Um, you have an elderly testator, you know, they're on Zoom. How do I mute? Uh, how do I turn on my camera? They, oh, one of the kids there, you know, is uh, in the background helping them with the technology. Who else? Well, what else is that kid doing in the background? So I know some lawyers saying now what you should do is hold up, have the client hold up the camera, pan the room to make sure uh, nobody else is in the room. But, you know, they could be next door. I think we're going to see litigation over these uh, virtual wills. I know there's talk now about uh, making this a permanent thing. It's been extended now to the end of November, I think, November 21st. It, but this this is great. We should have e-wills, you know, get the 21st century. And I have mixed feelings about that. I, I mean, there's definitely pros to it. But I still think that if someone is able 
to meet with a lawyer in person, that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's the best control, right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I, but I wouldn't say don't video. I'm just saying that um, it, it it's not the end on be all. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. So more about estates a little bit and, and the estates court, if you will. Um, I'm also licensed in Israel. And in Israel, it's so interesting. They don't have much of an estates world there. There's a number of reasons. One is they don't have a state administration tax. So there's less issues around the probate over there. And for some reason, they don't have much estate litigation there. But if anything, it's dealt with by the family law lawyers. So it's, it's a unique uh, beast that we have here in Ontario with the thriving estates bar and also the estates court. So maybe you can comment on what makes the estates uh, litigation practice unique and including the court, but uh, other things as well. Right. So it's interesting what you say about family and estate lawyers in Israel sort of being the same group. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we do see that here in Ontario as well. I mean, a lot of... Family lawyers. It used to be like family lawyers. Lawyers used to have practice. I don't know. They would do criminal law and family law. You don't see that as much now. But when I was a young lawyer, a lot of lawyers did family law and criminal law. I guess maybe a husband murders his wife or something. I don't know. But uh, now you do see there is an overlap between family law and estate law, particularly when you get to equalization claims or claims for support. And, and that sort of thing. So you do come across, there's sometimes when I have um, a case that involves, let's say, a support claim, I, I will often bring in a fa- uh, family lawyer to, to assist me mm-hmm. uh, because they do that. They do support claims every day and thousands of them. And we, you know, I, you know, I don't do as many as those. So it's sometimes I will work with a family lawyer to, to, to help me with that um, depending on the case. But and, and in Toronto, we have the the advantage of a dedicated uh, estates court. It's 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 they call it the estates list. It's 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 part of the commercial list in in Toronto, and it's mm-hmm. of the Ontario Supreme Court of Justice. Um, and the advantage is that you have judges who. Um, are, are very familiar with states because they're doing it day in and day out, as opposed to other jurisdictions where you go to see a, 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 the judge and he's just done a murder trial or she's just done a divorce case or a commercial case. And now uh, you have to educate him because they don't do that much estate work. Um, ironically, I don't know what's happening now. Ironically, though, in Toronto, even though you had these judges, they were building up quite a bit of expertise in estates law. When it came to doing a long trial, they would assign it to a judge on the civil list who's not on the estates list because they can't afford to have the estates judge, you know, do a do a do a month long trial. So I said, what's the point of having this specialized list if you're turning it over to a non estates judge to do the trial? Um, so it's it's so it's not really an estates court. It's just sort of like a, a panel of judges, and they do rotate them every few months so they get a, some new uh, judges in. Um, but it. Uh, it's very helpful because you don't have to uh, educate the judges and, and, and good judges will be the first one to tell you, say, tell the client, say, don't look to me for the law, look to your lawyers because they're educating me mm-hmm. because a judge is, has to be a generalist. They can't be an expert in anything, in everything. Right. Uh, I mean, some judges who were criminal lawyers, maybe they, that's all they do are criminal cases, but typically, you know, a judge will do all kinds of cases and they, they're not an expert in everything. So they rely on the lawyers to present the law accurately and fairly to them, both sides. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So as I commented uh, at the beginning, that your practice has now evolved into mediation more. It's funny, you mentioned just six, seven years ago, you evolved into state litigation. And it seems yeah, like it's every... a little longer than that. I lose track of time. I think it's probably closer to 10. But, I, I, but yeah. anyway, yes, yeah. So every decade or so, you have a bit of an evolution. Yeah. So uh, talk about the mediation. What makes that process so unique? And uh, I, I hear it's the way of the future. People are trying to avoid uh, court altogether and mediation is really on the uptick. So talk about the benefits and how it's going for you. Yeah. So in, in Toronto, uh, mediation of most estates of disputes is mandatory in Toronto and Ottawa in the, in the Windsor area. And now there's, there's talk of making it mandatory throughout the province of Ontario, but right now it's not, uh, uh, mandatory everywhere, although they changed the rules a few years ago that judges and even jurisdictions where they don't have mandatory mediation can on their own order mediation in a, in a state matter. So because, uh, you know, practicing, uh, even though my office is just north of Toronto, most of my work is in Toronto uh, because of the dedicated states list, I prefer to, to do it there. So, you know, we've been doing mediations now with the states for many years. Um, and we were probably, you know, very, you know, quick to realize that particularly in the estates context, mediation really works. Most cases will get settled at mediation. Um, and, uh, so I, I was interested in, and I guess as you get some gray hair, you say, well, maybe people start, you know, calling me up for advice or asking my opinion. Um, and, uh, and I, and I found that like, I was watching the mediators and they had different styles and mine is more facilitative, although I will weigh in with my opinion if parties get stuck at the end of the day. And I said, you know, um, you know, I'm interested in this. So I took a course in 2007. I went down to Harvard uh, Law School and I took a, a week long course uh, uh, in mediation, uh, five day course and uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, would have loved to have gone to law school at Harvard. I mean, I mean, they they had a, a whole building it was just a library. It was it was it was unbelievable. But um, so I really enjoyed that. And then um, I came back and I didn't really uh, do too much in terms of um, promoting my mediation practice. But the last uh, I guess four four years, five years, four years, I've been promoting it and uh, and uh, we're doing some. But then now. Uh, the last couple of years really building it up. And now with COVID and the COVID pandemic was probably a real boon to mediators because you can't get a court date. You can't get a trial date. You can't get a hearing date. you got the chief justice of Ontario saying, I don't care if mediation's mandatory or not. Do mediations. You got to sell these cases. We're, we're never going to catch up. And um, so there's been a tremendous uptick in mediations now because clients want to get their matter settled and uh, or disposed of. And the courts just can't deal with it right now. Um, and they're just so far behind. So, you know, and like I said, and I found for me personally, I just really enjoy it. You know, I uh, uh, to be a good mediator, you got to be part psychologist, uh, part social worker. Um, and, you know, I did my undergrad uh, degree in, in psychology. Me too. And, uh, you know, I thought maybe I'd want to become a psychologist. And uh, and um, so so as you know, as lawyers, I mean, we're not there to, to do counseling, but clients come to us, particularly in the states area and they have emotional issues. And so as a mediator, you have to 
you know, learn to really listen. So uh, I've really worked hard on my listening skills because I didn't think I was a great listener, great talker, but, you know, we have one mouth, two ears, so we're supposed to listen. So mediation, you know, has really improved my listening skills, which I think has also improved my skills as a, as a, as a lawyer. Um, you know, you really got to listen to the clients. And what I found was, I think one of the most striking things that someone said to me as a mediator there's a mediation I did, I guess, I think it was late last year. Uh, anyway, um, one of the clients who really was in the wrong, I mean, they had not, they were an attorney for property and they had, you know, taken money from the parent for their own use. And, you know, the, the other sibling was bringing a, a claim for an accounting. So, you know, they had to, um, they had to settle the case. They had to come up with quite a bit of money, uh, to pay it back. And, um, uh, but, and, you know, but I wasn't in there, you know, lecturing them or, you know, or saying, you know, you, you know, you stole from your parent and shame on you. How, you know, why are we even here? Um, you sort of say, yeah, you know, uh, you know, it, you, you took the money and I know you feel maybe you were justified, but I think maybe a court's going to look at it differently. Um, and, but I'm gentle about it. And at the end of the day, that, that client, uh, I think the lawyer just stepped outside to, to confirm it with the other counsel. And I was sitting there waiting for the lawyer to come back. And the client turned to me and said, you know, you're the first person that listened to me. And I think that's what estate litigation is all about is the clients want to be heard. They want to be listened to. And, uh, because they're, they're carrying a lot of emotion, a lot of baggage. Uh, it's not like a business dispute, you know, it, it's, it's part of their soul. And, and sometimes they just need someone to, to speak to, you know, speak with. And so, um, I enjoy meeting people for the most part. Most of the people I come across in my practice are not all of them, but the vast majority are, are good people. And I, and, uh, um, and um, so it's a good fit for me. And that's why I, I'm trying to, you know, head, you know, full time into mediation. That's sort of my, my, my goal eventually. Right. That's great. Um, it's, it's, there's a very important place for mediation in, you know, our, our legal system. Can you break it down for someone who's maybe looking to litigate or mediate and they don't know much about the process? Uh, explain what it takes to come to a successful mediation and include each party has to hire their own lawyer and their lawyers submit mediation briefs and what happens from there? All right. So, just to touch on your your first point, litigate or mediate. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, in most cases, litigation is commenced um, before the parties mediate. They're in mm -hmm. the midst of a proceeding, but not always. But most of the time, and and I always feel that the sooner you can get to mediation, the better, because litigation is extremely expensive, uh, both financially and emotionally. Uh, but the odds are the case is going to settle anyway. I mean, 95% of these cases, maybe even higher, settle, do not go to trial. Why? People run out of steam and more so they run out of money. Um, so, but, so getting to mediation sooner than later is better because you're going to save costs if you settle. Also, the further along you go down the path in the litigation process, like you go through cross-examinations, discoveries, the more money you have invested in the case, the more entrenched the parties come in their positions and it makes it more difficult to settle. So usually, um, 
uh, counsel, the clients already have counsel because litigation has been commenced. But uh, I typically will only mediate. I, I haven't done any mediations where the party was self-represented. So usually they'll have a lawyers and the lawyers, you're right, will submit briefs um, in which they set out their position and the, and the key facts and some, sometimes some of the law. And But it's not the same thing as preparing a brief for court where you're arguing. I mean, as a mediator, I'm not making a decision. I'm there to facilitate a discussion. You don't have to convince me about anything. I have to convince you, both sides, to keep talking. I'm not going to, I'm not, it's not that I'm doing an arbitration. We can talk about that later. I mean, uh, doing mediation is, if you're, not, if you're not happy, party, you can leave. I can't keep you here. And at the end of the day, if you don't settle, it's like it never happened. It's totally off the record. Mm-hmm. So at the mediation, we'll start off typically with a meeting, if we can, with everybody in the room together. Um, in the uh, earlier days of mediation, uh, the mediator would call on the lawyers to make a, an opening statement. Uh, I don't do that, and I haven't seen it done, even in mediations where I'm involved as counsel for the longest time, because I don't think it's particularly helpful. You know, it's not court. You're not making an opening statement to a jury. Okay, everyone's read the brief. Everybody knows what the case is about. So what I'll do is I'll I'll ask the clients and say, "This is your day. Never mind the lawyers. This is your day." Um, what do you have to say to your brother or your sister? And sometimes it's a little risky um, because, you know, so if you sense it's going off the rails, you say, okay, enough of that. Um, we're, uh, but typically it's a very short meeting where um, I talk about the process, what mediation is, that it's a confidential off the record. It's your opportunity today to stop the bleeding financially, to end this and get on with your life, stop the bleeding emotionally. It's all private go to court and there's a decision. One of you is going to lose. It's going to be all over the internet forever. You want your dirty laundry over the internet? Um, I said, you don't, and nobody's going to tell you what a judge is going to do. If anyone tells you that you're going to win your case hundred percent run, because nobody can tell you that. And you can ask your lawyers. We've all had cases that we thought were sure winners and we lose. And we've had cases that we thought were sure losers and we win or, you know, or motions or whatever. Um, and so I set the stage and I also say, and you know, mediation really works 95 plus percent or something some people say higher, these cases settle at mediation. So I'm already setting the mood, the expectation. And I said, but you have to be prepared to make serious compromise, painful compromise. If, if you say, I'm not going to budge and I'm not going to budge, I said, don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. Goodbye. I said, you're here today because you want to settle your dispute and get on with your life. And uh, sometimes if it's over a will or something, I might say, imagine your parents here in the room with us. What do you think your parents would want to see happen here? Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes the, the Kleenex comes out, you know, it's a very emotional thing. It's a cathartic process. Um, and... Uh, and nothing gives me more pleasure than at the end of the day, and hopefully it's not too late in the night because sometimes it'll go well into the evening, but hopefully at the end of the day, the, I always say nobody's going to be thrilled if you reach a settlement. You're both going to be somewhat unhappy, but that's a fair settlement. Mm-hmm. You go to court, one of you is going to be really unhappy when you get the order to pay costs of you know the other side, and so plus your own lawyers. So, uh, so that's what happens, at least at my mediations. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's been going pretty well. I really enjoy it. And 
there doesn't be any shortage of estate disputes. Right now, I'm focusing on estate disputes uh, because I don't feel comfortable doing, let's say, personal injury because it's I, I haven't kept up with the law. But I used to do wrongful dismissal law early on, so I could do you know those as well. Eventually, I plan to branch out into some other areas that I feel comfortable in that aren't too technical. But uh, right now, I'm focusing on states. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I love the uh, reconciliation approach that you take. I also studied psychology and thought about being a psychologist. And I think mediation is the closest thing to that, really trying to help people overcome their issues. And it's uh, quasi legal, but uh, like you said, because it's not binding, it's it's just really there trying to help people. You're not there to enforce any decision one way or another. Um, so it's, there's an important place for it. And I think that it's definitely a, a growing trend in law is to try to mediate as much as possible. Um, you go back to the early part in your career, if we can just change chronologically a little bit and looking at where you are right now, successful lawyer, boutique firm, mediator, is there anything you'd like to maybe tell your younger self, your younger lawyer self, or, um, you know, do you have any regrets about the journey that you took? Maybe, um, advice to younger lawyers, where, where do you want to take that? Um, regrets. Um, that's a, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I guess the advice I would give to younger lawyers is, I guess one of the regrets I had is that working in small firms, although I mentioned, you know, uh, Ben Sishi, I, I didn't have as much of the opportunity um, to have like uh, a mentor to sort of guide me along. I sort of was figuring it out stuff for myself, which made it uh, more difficult. So what I think I would encourage young lawyers is get yourself a mentor or two, um, a senior lawyer, um, go for coffee, um, go observe them in court or see if you can sit on a mediation or on a discovery. Because let's face it, we get out of law school, you know, and you get called to bar and you're, you know, I mean, I don't know what they teach in med school, but if med school was like law school, I wouldn't want that doctor going anywhere near me because we come out, we don't know anything about the practice of law. We don't even know how to open a file. We don't know anything about the business of law. Uh, so I got myself a book. I forget the name of it. There's a book about how to start your own, build your own law practice. I think it's, it's probably in the several editions old now. So I read that. That was helpful. Uh, so for get yourself a mentor um, and read as much as you can about the subject area you're interested in. Go to as many courses as you can. It's very different now. What, I, what I'm finding with the young lawyers coming out now, what I'm really impressed about is, man, they're bright. And they're confident and they're savvy. And I wasn't like that. I, when I came out, I didn't know what I was doing. And maybe, maybe I was, but I just sense that the young lawyers that come out now, um, they seem to have a lot more guts and a lot, a lot of drive. And you, know, you see a lot of them, I guess, out of necessity are starting their own practices or associating with other lawyers. One thing that the, the younger lawyers have over the my generation is that we didn't have social media or network now with Facebook, with LinkedIn, with blogging and podcasts. Like you can get your name out there and the public might think you're a huge firm. They don't know because it's how you present yourself, how you, how you, how your website is. So marketing is very important. 
And uh, I think networking is very important. So like hang out with lawyers um, and because that's how you can get referrals. That's how, you know, you can learn. Um, and uh, always, you know, if you're having a bad day and the phone's not ringing and you haven't opened up a file for, for two weeks, remember that it's going to get better. Okay, I got to tell you, there was, there was some times during my practice, like I said, I'm sitting here saying, what the heck am I doing? I'm waiting for the phone to ring. And uh, it was a little scary. But I survived and, you know, and, and, and built up a practice, uh, a good practice. So I think that every lawyer who wants it, can, can that can happen. It's hard work, especially, you know, long hours in the beginning. But now I think you, you have to spend a lot of time focusing on marketing and networking because there's a lot of competition out there and you have to sort of, you know, stand out or as, as my coach, uh, Sufit wrote a book called step into the spotlight, you know? So I work with a coach and that's another thing. Um, get yourself a mentor, get yourself a coach who can sort of look at what you're doing and give you tips on how you can maybe improve, um, uh, you know, what, what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's that's really great advice, and so much to unpack there. But as a fellow uh, boutique lawyer, if you will, you 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 know you must have learned a lot from your marketing experience. I wasn't planning on asking you this in particular, but are there any takeaways from marketing? Um, I mentioned your book at the beginning, which is a really unbelievable book. Um, is there a purpose behind that, or the other marketing that you do? And does one thing you have found work better than others? Um, yeah, the book was, uh, I think the book was something that I always sort of wanted to, to write something. And my book is more geared toward the lay person as to the professional. Though a lot of lawyers have, have got the book and, and, and told me they, they find it helpful. Um, because I was just seeing the same things coming up and up in my, over and again in my practice. And I thought I'd write about it. Um, but there's it, no question that uh, having a book out there and saying you've written a book does give you credibility, has helped the marketing. Um, I was interested in getting uh, more mediations and, and I don't, you know, if it's bad or it's just the old fashioned word of mouth, which I still think is still the best marketing, uh, but, you know, get me uh, speaking engagements and that sort of thing. So uh, marketing um, is very important. Like I set aside, uh, I try to set aside at least uh, one day a week uh, like Friday, we're recording this on a Friday, where it's my marketing and midday. I don't have client meetings, okay, because writing, uh, blogs, um, trying to get uh, speaking engagements at the bar association conferences or law society conferences, anything you can get your to get your name and reputation out there. Um, you know, there's some lawyers that build a reputation as a great trial lawyer, but for the most litigators, you're not going to be doing all that many trials because, like I said, especially in the estates context, a lot of stuff gets sales. So if you're a criminal lawyer, like early in my career, I really enjoy criminal law because you, you, you got to go to court. You know, you're going to get to court. And so that's one way to build your reputation by winning cases. But you can also build a reputation by people seeing that you know what you're talking about, you know your area. So I see this young lawyers doing that. They have blogs and and um, they're they're getting involved with the bar association um, uh, committees and they get invited to speak. Um, and you know when you speak, hundreds of lawyers are are hearing you and they get to know your names. And oh yes, that per, you know you know that person here, she had a good point. I think I I might want to call them for a referral. So um, it, it's tough, 
but you certainly can get your reputation growing a lot more quickly now than I did early in my career because you can reach millions of people. Um, a lot of my clients, um, I'd say the vast majority of them now, I mean, some are for referrals, but the vast majority of them are finding me on the internet. And I find when they meet with me, they know more about me than I do because they've, they've read my website. They've read articles. They've seen videos. I don't, they said, Oh yeah, you, you, you wrote that. I said, I did. Oh yeah. You know, you know so, um, so the, the online presence now is very important. Right. Uh, yeah. Super fascinating. And um, I've heard recently from another sole practitioner or boutique lawyer that um, they've not marketed at all to other lawyers and speaking engagements with the OBA. They focus on market marketing to clients, going to the source. Um, so I, I haven't quite figured that out yet, um, but it's well, an interesting angle which you have to right. choose to take. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I should take. I should, yeah, maybe amend that what I said a little bit. Um, I think when I was, yeah, when I was doing like drafting and solicitors work. Then I had a different audience. My audience was the accountants, mm-hmm. the financial planners. Uh, so, yeah, that, so I think that's a very good point. So what you want to do is you want to see who who's your audience, who's, who's your source of referrals, and that's who you want to target. So if you're trying to build up a, a will practice, then you want to talk to that demographic, right? So I, uh, you know, talk to some senior homes or, re- or retirement communities, talk to accountants because they're dealing with clients and they're going to say, hey, you need a will, financial planners. Mm-hmm. So... Now I focus more on lawyers because my source of business out mediations is lawyers, right? Or, or litigation is solicitors sending me work. But yeah, you have to define who your, your target is. So you're right. Uh, speaking to the bar association may not be right for you if, if you're trying to build up, uh, you know, an immigration law practice or whatever, you're, you're going to say, where, where do I think my clients are going to come from? But having said that, um, the internet is very important. Social media is extremely important, and uh, and I think you have to watch what people are saying about you too. So, absolutely, all all very good points, and uh, it's about tweaking until you find the right angle, and uh, it's, it's a lot of thought that needs to go into it. Yeah. So, I, I completely agree. Thank you for those comments. Um, I'll have one last question before I let you go. Uh, people usually get a bit caught up with it. So uh, uh, take your time. And that is, do you have a favorite quote or saying or adage that you live by, if you will? And if you don't, do you have any favorite books perhaps that have influenced uh, your life and your thinking? Okay. Uh, quotes. Um so I, I, I was going to think like if I had a motto, um, you know, I, it, it was always like, you know, I, I always tell people, um, um, you know, keep on rocking, you know, cause you know, I, I played a, and my passion is music. So, so I'm in a band and I'm a lawyer by day, want to be rock star at night. But, uh, so I always say keep on rocking, but I always tell you just keep moving. And actually, um, I came across a quote by Albert Einstein and it was sort of, you know, it's a lot more elkin with than keep on rocking or keep moving. He said, you know, life is like riding a bicycle to keep your balance. You have to keep moving. 
And I thought that was a, a great quote. Um, and so, you know, keep moving, be kind. I don't know. There's enjoy what you do. And if it's not fun, find something else because, um, you know, uh, uh, money's not everything. And, uh, and there's, if you're not happy with what you're doing in the after practicing for many years, you know, you, you may have a regret. Although I think law as an, I always tell people law as an education is great. Whether you practice law or not, I love that. That was the favorite part of my career was law school, surprisingly. Um, in terms of books, um, I, I like anything. I remember anything by Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, uh, I, you know, like Cat's Cradle or God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. I think it was in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. There was a, uh, forget the character, but there's, I think, a father talking to a son. And he says, son, one day a lot of money is going to change hands. Make sure you're in the middle. <laughs> and I said, no, no, that's probably for a lawyer. Um, uh, what have I been reading recently? I, um so yeah the other thing is like i used to read mostly like lost stuff like lost stuff, like and you have to read a lot of stuff but you know get away from the loss of something right now so i what am i reading now um i heard you paint houses you painted houses i don't know if you know this one the jimmy hoffa book but the netflix made a movie about frank sheeran the guy who killed jimmy hoffa so i'm reading finishing that now um i'd like uh i'd like uh historical uh biographies so uh, I read, um, uh, I read, well, I didn't see Hamilton, but I read the, the Ron Chernow's book on Hamilton, which was fascinating. I was supposed to see Hamilton, but then COVID canceled the performance. Um, and so Ron Chernow's written some great books. I read one on Ulysses S. Grant, which is a fascinating biography of President Grant. Wow. Uh, and I just read, he wrote a book about the family called the Warburgs, which was a Jewish family and going back to the 16 or 1700s in Germany bankers and how they had to uh, flee Nazi Germany. And then they sort of reestablished themselves after the war. And uh, I love that. And in terms of law stuff, um, a book that I used to go to back and forth, back to quite often was an old book on cross-examination called The Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman. It's like a, it's an old book, but it's like a classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to look at that one as well. And uh, that's all I can think of right now. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Charles. You, you've been great. So much uh, wisdom and experience that you've shared with us today. Uh, I loved your last comment. It, it reminded me of my LLM, my Master's of Law, was at Hebrew University. And right in the middle of the campus there, they have, what do you know, Albert Einstein riding on a bicycle. Exactly like you said, in, in well, some copper structure. So um, I'll leave you the last word, but I love the fact that you just got to keep on moving, moving because if not, you'll get swept away. So um, a- any last words before we let you go? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I wanted to th- thank you for uh, ha- having me on your podcast. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I didn't know, like, when you said we were going to talk about an hour, I said, how am I going to talk about an hour? And then I looked like there was like, you know, um, it goes so quickly. So thank right. you for that. And uh, and I, I guess um, if anyone hopefully is going to listen to this or watch it is I you know hope I I had something of useful of use for them to take away. Um, and but the one point I I I, I tell because I do meet with young lawyers for coffee from time to time is, you know, enjoy what you're doing and you have to have a balance between work and and your personal life. Mm-hmm. And and that's a bit of a challenge now with COVID, with somebody else working from home, right? There's this temptation to 
it's so easy because your office is right there, right? You gotta, you gotta find time for yourself and your family. Uh, and because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. That's right. We're humans at the end of the day. And the lessons that you've shared with us today, the importance of listening, for example, in your litigation and mediation practice, I was just thinking that's how to be a good human at the end of the day, a good spouse, a good parent, or whatever the case may be is you've got to listen. And these lessons you've shared with us uh, apply not only in, as, as a lawyer, but all aspects of our life. So again, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. I look forward to uh, staying in touch and uh, seeing you on the next one. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.